Hi, I'm Jamie Brazil. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Maya Kantek, Consumer Insights Manager at Disney Parks, Experiences, and Products. Prior to joining Disney, Maya has held senior roles in the market research and insight functions at Del Taco and Honda Research and Development. Maya, thank you for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Hi, Jamin. Thanks so much for having me. Today, almost everyone has taken surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for professional market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel, and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market research feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodology, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your idea from your target market in a presentation-ready format. Oh, and by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, please visit surveymonkey.com slash market research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market research. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast comes from FuelCycle. This episode is brought to you by FuelCycle Ignition. Ignition is the agile insights platform that enables leaders and their teams to improve product, brand, customer, and employee experiences with no insights experience required. With FC Live virtual focus groups and interviews, an ad effectiveness solution, and survey automation capabilities, FuelCycle Ignition offers the only all-in-one Agile Insights ecosystem for supercharging the relationship between brands and their customers, and serves the world's most innovative brands, including Google, Hulu, Tufts Health Plan, Kahart, and more. To learn how Ignition can take your research to the next level, visit fuelcycle.com. It's an absolute honor. I'd like to start with a little bit of context. Maybe you could tell us about your parents and how they informed what you do today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me. It's actually a really funny story. So my parents were both immigrants from India. They came to the U.S. during college and graduate school. And what's actually really interesting is that my dad, he went into the workforce a little bit earlier than my mom, and he went into engineering on the product development side. And in turn, he kind of became an end user of market research. So when my mom was ready to enter the workforce, with her social psych degree, my dad kind of nudged her into market research, which makes me one of the few rare second generation market researchers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So really interesting. Um, she went first on the client side, she went to Pioneer and then Mitsubishi. And when Mitsubishi was moving to their headquarters to Atlanta, my mom decided to venture out and start her own full service market research firm, Applied Research West. Do you remember her first client? Uh, her first client was Honda, actually. <laughs> she loves telling that story. I bet. We would have a whole other podcast for that okay. one, though. <laughs> I was going to dive in, but apparently it's a little bit too long. So, so <laughs> you as a youth were exposed to the inner workings of market research. I assume that you had some hands in the business? Pretty much from a really, really young age, I was doing, quote unquote, I was doing market research. As a kid, I was stuffing surveys into envelope with a dollar bill. You know, I kind of worked my way up. 
so to speak, into transcribing focus groups, coding open ends, finally running frequencies all before I even started college. So definitely exposed to market research at a young age, but it was fun. It was actually, I really enjoyed those days because I was like spending time with my parents. I didn't think of it as market research. Yeah. And it it really is a, like the back office of market research is, it's just like an admin job, right? I mean, 90% of, at least before the digital automation phase entered about five years ago, about 90% of the work was just, you know, operational considerations. You mentioned stuffing envelopes, probably a portion of our listeners don't exactly know what you mean. You want to expand on (laughs) why people put dollar bills in envelopes? No, that's really funny because had I been anybody else and not exposed to market research at such a young age, I would fall in that camp that you just mentioned. I wouldn't know anything about that. So really kind of a unique experience I had. But yeah, with the stuffing the envelope with dollar bill in a survey is that was how incentives were 20 years ago. And it's just so interesting that I had that exposure and that ability to kind of see market research grow even at my age. And it's such a psychological, I am old enough to not have the claim that if I wouldn't have worked with my parents, but the <laughs> psychologically, when you receive a dollar bill, which is not very much money, right? And a survey, a paper-based survey with a self-addressed envelope, you feel very guilty about pocketing the dollar and throwing the survey away. And so many people mm-hmm. will take the time to, assuming it's not like this massive, you know, 30 minute exercise will take the time to fill out the survey. And it actually has, is, is a very cost effective or was, I haven't done it in many years, a cost effective way to actually get RDD sample, meaning random digit dialing, so to speak, but you do it at an address level, mm-hmm. targeting usually specific DMAs. And uh, it's a really inexpensive way to do advertising. I mean, just to kind of like level set in a modern context, Chu Yi and I are doing some research operations for other companies. And we recruit using social media, which is the modern equivalent to random digit dialing, I guess. And, you know, a Facebook ad on a complete will cost us around $4 just to get the link uh, click and then get them into the survey. So, you know, you think about that from a mail perspective, that's functionally four, three to four pieces of mail that you would have distributed, right? And back in those days, I was getting about a one in three return rate which was pretty high. Now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking, gosh, why don't I do that again? But I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's time to defer resurgence of mail. Yeah, go back a little yeah. bit. <laughs> so we're talking about diversity and it's been a, probably, not probably, it's been absolutely the most insightful discussions I've had from a personal growth perspective with other professionals mm-hmm. like yourself who come from a diverse background other than me, which is, you know, white male <laughs> in the forties. And as I've gone through this journey, I really have been humbled by the amount of, you know, our feeling bad maybe about me applying my lens as I analyze data with mm-hmm. subgroups or specific segments right? That weren't me. And kind of my big takeaway so far and an aha moment has been, you know, the context of growing up and your subsequent view of the world is entirely, that lens is built on who you are in a physical way and then also in a socioeconomic way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, we have 
forgotten that or not had that as really that bias drilled into us. So when we're doing through our, when we're going through our analytics, it's absolutely imperative that you know we have this humility to say maybe I don't represent this people group accurately. And as such, I should incorporate them in the an- analytics as, you know, to at least vet my assumptions. But mm-hmm. so it kind of leads into that long-winded question leads into our statement really leads into our topic today. What do you see as the role of diversity in consumer research, especially in context of a post-pandemic landscape? Yeah, no, absolutely. Without question, diversity needs to be included in a consideration of market research and the market research process. I mean, we need diversity in the sample inclusion in the questions that we're asking and perspective on the team, like you mentioned, um, for those who are actually interpreting the results. The most obvious reason for that is because when we include groups that have previously been ignored, we're widening our reach, which is ultimately our goal as market researchers. But like you mentioned, in the post-pandemic landscape, it's going to be that much more important. You know, without question, the U.S. is very diverse. I actually had the privilege of doing some research in the U.S. and internationally in Japan. And it's so interesting to see the difference in results, not just because it's different populations, but you'll see that in Japan, there's this very homogenous kind of thinking that response will be 80% said this or 90% said this. Whereas in the U.S., we frequently see that 20%, 30%, 40%, and it's kind of across the board answers. And, you know, not just that the U.S. is diverse with a lot of diverse people, different people with different opinions, but, you know, about what's going on now and about how that's going to look particularly in that post-pandemic landscape. There's certain groups that are being disproportionately affected by this novel coronavirus, which is going to have a huge and potentially lasting impact on their consumer confidence, their priorities, like you mentioned, ethnicity, social economic status, but also disabled people, pregnant people, elderly people, and not just at the individual level, but at the statewide level too. New York, for example, completely different perspective and different disproportionately affected by this pandemic. Yeah, that's that's actually really an interesting point that I hadn't considered, but you're absolutely right. Like it's almost as if you need professionals if you're representing a specific people group or segment in the mm-hmm. population, then it's it's important that you have access to market research professionals that are connected to to that segment. Ideally they're part of that segment because it can help mm-hmm. create one it'll vet your your hypotheses, but two, you know, it'll it'll help you from a language perspective correct the the way that you're communicating the insights. I was on a panel recently with SurveyMonkey and Pepper Miller was one of the panelists. And as a black woman in Chicago, she started a practice under Pepper Miller Consultancy, where she actually helps companies understand the black consumer, right, through her lens, which is one that is very accurate, right? And she actually referenced some COVID 19 research that was published by a top market research agency where they depicted the black consumer or broadly audience, the segment in the US as being overwhelmingly optimistic about going through this process. And she was talking about, you know, why that was an incorrect and maybe even insulting point of view. And so, you know, it just, it really kind of underscored for me the importance of 
making sure that you have that consumer insight professional as you know part of the research function. Yeah, when you think about the post-pandemic landscape, I'm just curious on a personal level, have you seen your network expand or contract during the last six weeks, seven weeks? That's an interesting question. I would definitely say it's expanded. I've kind of had a little inspiration by reading several articles saying this is the time to network. No one has anything else to do. So. <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of took that as inspiration and just reached out to a lot of my network, you being one of them, actually. And um, yeah, kind of went from there. So definitely, I'd say has expanded. It's been interesting to me. I didn't realize it, but I was, if you and I were to have a meeting, I would want to go visit you in Orange County because I love Orange County and Disneyland, by the way. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, more specifically, because I've used in person as the way to really create connection. But now with this kind of lockdown. We don't have that as an option anymore. And now we're leveraging video and it is mm -hmm. creating a real connection. And, and that saved, you know, for me, it would have saved a day of travel and not to say I wouldn't have traveled for you, but you get the point, right? Yeah. Instead, I was able to probably meet with many other people. Are you participating in any of the house party or Zoom more like from a social perspective? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of Jackbox, have but that's definitely a lot of my friends, many different friend groups are kind of getting on Zoom calls and playing Jackbox together, which is basically like games like Pictionary and Trivia and other kind of games that you just need a cell phone, that you just need a phone to log into. Got so it. It's really fun. Oh, that's yeah. It's kind of like Pigeon. I think it's another, is it uh, similar app? I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. So you guys, you guys basically play the game on your phones, but then you have the Zoom mm -hmm. interaction piece. Yeah. I'm going to try that with the drinking game. <laughs> You absolutely can. I've been saying that from experience. <laughs> oh, all right. So when you're thinking about like the diversity in the team of the research team, what considerations do you think we should be giving to the to diversity in the in the team that's actually doing the research? Yeah, I mean, kind of piggybacking on what we were saying earlier, if you and not just you, but in general, metaphorical you, haven't been thinking about diversity yet or so far. Now more than ever is that time to do so, particularly on that market research team, like you were saying. It's really important. I mean, the sample itself post-pandemic is likely going to change and look very different. And the team doing the research should have the perspective to recognize this. And that obviously comes out of having a more diverse representation on that team. One of my favorite examples of this is actually when I was doing some product development research for a vehicle that I was working on. So for that research, we were basically asked to ask customers to rate and tell us their opinions on 15 or so different features that we were potentially going to add to the vehicle. So of course I go in and I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, this one, this one, this one, those are the winners. Any researcher will say that they've done that. You know? And But when the results came back, it was really interesting to me that the results were totally different from what I thought, almost opposite, actually, which, of course, you know, we do market research because we can't predict what the results are going to be. But it was so strange to me that the results are so, so different. So as I uh, mentioned, we did this research with current customers. And this current customer was heavily skewed male, to the point where the male sample was actually overpowering the voice of the female mm -hmm. customer. 
when I divided the customer sample by male and female, it told a completely different story. And the features that did well amongst females were actually much more in line with my thoughts. Again, not exactly, but much more in line with my thinking and why I thought certain features would do well, which was so interesting to me because when I ended up presenting this to the company, to the product development team working on this vehicle, a female engineer, she actually stood up in the middle of the presentation and she's in the sea of male engineers. She stood up in this presentation. She's like, I've been trying to tell them this for years. <laughs> and that was probably my biggest aha moment of how important having diverse representation is, particularly on the team, on the market research team, but just everywhere. It's a kind of, it's a systemic issue for a company like the one that I described, you know, mostly male engineers. The customer ends up being a lot of males because the male engineers are catering to the male customer. And, you know, it's kind of systemic and it's built into our companies unless we actively do something about it. I mean, that's really interesting. In, in some ways, there it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy, it sounds like, you know, where we're, mm -hmm. in this case, males building products for themselves. And then obviously it's resonating with um, that same people group, but then subsequently isolating other segments of the, of the market. When you think about that particular study, was there a clear application or insight that they were able to draw on to be more inclusive or attract the female buyer? Well, what was really important kind of lens for us to look at this research with was that females, whether or not they're the primary consumer or the primary um, purchaser of a vehicle, have the say in majority of vehicle purchases. And so for us to ignore the female's perspective was just, didn't make any sense. Huh, that's super interesting. And yet another insight that you would have probably missed were the, given obviously the frame of the room or the context of the uh, profile of the people that were listening to your presentation, I'm just really curious, were they able to receive that? Oh, absolutely. It's a very collaborative company and very open, open-minded. So I think a lot of the male engineers in particular just sat there thinking, how did I not see this before? Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's good to hear that they're receiving it. I've been in been in situations where it hasn't been quite so well received, but you know, nonetheless, I think we are it's incumbent on us to always be truth tellers. What advice would you give to people that maybe in a similar situation where they may be the minority in the room as a researcher, but they're presenting a point of view that may be controversial or different. What, like, how do you, do you have any points where you could recommend how they could communicate that to the, to their um, internal customers? Yeah, no, I love that question. I think as market researchers, we are always trying to eliminate our bias. That's something that's really important to us and ingrained to us at a very early stage in our career. But for that minority person or person who has that controversial viewpoint or understanding, I would really want them to think about not trying to eliminate that bias to the point where they lose their perspective and unique lens and to really embrace that they're looking at that data with a unique and relevant lens, particularly when the customer matches their kind of minority status, and to be confident in that and to communicate it as such. 
That's good. That's really good advice, actually. And it kind of like helps us accept who we are as part Mm -hmm. of the sample, right? As we interpret and understand that data and then subsequently relay and and tell the story. I think it's going to be the case, and I don't know, this is just a bet of mine, that we're going to see an an intentional increase in diversity among researchers at the analytics phase side Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. business. That could be really powerful. My view or lens of that is, you know, my experience so far has been Jamin standing up in front of a group of people relaying some insights, right? <laughs> but it would be probably a lot more powerful if, actually not probably, definitely, if there was those people groups or specific researchers representing those people groups that were able to convey the specific segment's point of view as it relates to the insight. Absolutely. And don't be afraid to ask people too. Everyone is kind of, you know, as you hear today, we're all in this together. Mm. I frequently have done research on groups that I'm not a part of, and I'll actually phone a friend or right. go to someone within the company and just be like, does this make sense to you? Like, are you seeing this mm-hmm. in your community? Or, you know, just kind of get that perspective any way you can. So when you think about trends in research, how will research be different over the next few years? And really where I'm trying to hone in on here is, you know, what either methods or types of research or even tools do you think will be less or used more? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, particularly because of the pandemic, the current pandemic that we're all experiencing on the research side and on the consumer side. I definitely see mobile research and video research kind of having its light in this post-pandemic landscape, especially and particularly because Mobile research kind of gives that flexibility of the customer answering questions from the comfort of their own homes. They're not being forced to be in this room face-to-face with not just the moderator, but other consumers, which I know a lot of people are going to be very skeptical about coming out of this pandemic, but they can do it in their own homes. They can do it on their own time a lot of times, and it really allows for a more... um, I guess, comfortable and more genuine kind of feedback from the customer, which I really love. I actually was a part of a innovative project called, um, it was a mobile mission research project that I presented on prior to this. And it was exactly that. It was asking a few questions and saying, record your video, answering these questions and send it over you know, along with a bunch of other quantitative questions. And we were able to collect this mobile video at scale. We had 200 respondents sending us answers to certain questions. And something like that, I could see really taking off post-pandemic. Yeah, the whole like asynchronous video is really interesting. Um, And then also, Mm -hmm. as you're saying, we're all, we've all become accustomed to video. And by all, I mean quite literally all. My kids yesterday did a 45-minute Zoom call with, let me remember how many tiles, or six, seven, with seven tiles. So it would have been six people plus them, other little kids. And this is a, you know, these are not like technologically advanced (laughs) kids. And they're doing things like costume changes and making faces and stuff like that. And so there's this really interesting inflection point in our culture right now where you're seeing the video adoption being forced upon us. And as I, mm-hmm. as I think about kind of like a post-pandemic, I could see a scenario where it's not going to replace, the video call is not going to replace the in-person play date, but it might enable the play date 
with more people at once. And then as that relates with research, I, I don't, I completely agree with your thesis that we're going to see, you know, that, that become a much bigger part. Do you think there's going to be a rise in tools that are specific to enabling video-based research? Or do you think those tools have been established and you're going to, you know, kind of either stay the same or decrease even? That's actually a really good question. I can see a lot of tools that traditionally do other things, for example, consumer experience or something, integrating video into their already established tool. But I can also definitely see smaller startups kind of throwing their hat in the game or even larger companies that have traditionally not been used for market research to throw their hat in the game. Zoom is a really good example of a company that's not been an insight company necessarily, but definitely has kind of the power of their name where they can definitely um, throw their hat in the game. So. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And you, know, you think about the things that are missing with Zoom right now, it's really just the backroom experience, meaning you know the ability to be able to, in real time, view a conversation without being part of the conversation. At least to my knowledge, that doesn't exist. Yeah, I, mean, I can see Zoom for researchers. Or yeah. <laughs> something like... And they even have real-time transcripts, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, there's like a, there's a lot of efficiency that is built into the tool. Huh, interesting. I want to kind of piggyback on this point, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. The space market research has been identified as one of the hardest hit or impacted sectors because of COVID-19. And, you know, we've I've seen this, you know, through the dot-com bust, and I saw it again in the 2009 financial crisis. You know, market research always bounces back. I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom, but I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, that you are going to have or do have quite a few companies that have made hard decisions and, and there's been layoffs mm-hmm. and not just in market research. I mean, we see this in many sectors. What skills should people, uh, researchers be trying to or developing in themselves in order to maintain relevancy and edge in, a, in this new world? So top of mind for me is kind of related to the mobile video. So I'm just trying to think of how to articulate that. Do you think it's centric to how, you know, what, like becoming an expert, you know, traditionally in consumer insights or market research, I should say, um, you know, you had to use SPSS, for example. Uh, Do you think it's Mm -hmm. becoming more competent with the actual tools like Zoom? Or do you think it's, you know, something else like how to do, I don't know what. Actually, you know, sorry, Um, different pivot. Uh, I just realized that most, like what I've been reading a lot about and what I've been thinking a lot about is how you were talking about a lot of layoffs and companies and a lot of companies kind of, you know, a lot of market researchers being hit hard by this pandemic. And I could definitely see the world of tomorrow having a lot of in-house research more than ever before. That's how I've had my edge in my career is eliminating vendors and doing a lot of research in house. I can see companies doing more and more of that. Not saying that vendors don't have their place, but vendors will need to adapt. They will need to be more specialists and more complementary to research being done in house. Interesting. When you think about the complementary piece of that, do you think it's centric to like research operations, like getting people to participate? Or do you think it's more an augment of like analytic horsepower or something else? I think it's more like 
what I'm seeing a lot is um, full service vendors in particular being able to piggyback on a project and do piecemeal portions of a project Got it. or companies taking insights to that next level and being almost the consultant due to their kind of expertise in many different industries. What is your personal motto? I live by three pretty simple rules. <laughs> Very shockingly simple, actually. Um, one, decide what you're going to do. Two, do it. And three, decide the next thing you're going to do. <laughs> and I really like that motto for me just because I'm the type of person who literally I'll decide what I'm going to do. And nothing is going to stop me from accomplishing that. Like the mobile research project that I mentioned before, I actually had to custom code the video into the survey tool and use JavaScript and HTML and things I had never touched before. And I had to teach it, teach myself <laughs> how to do it. But that's kind of my personality is when I want a survey to look a certain way or do a certain thing, I'm going to do it. <laughs> My guest today has been Maya Kantek, Consumer Insights Manager at Disney Parks, Experiences, and Products. Thank you, Maya, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Everyone else, I hope you found value in this episode. As always, screen capture, share on social media. If you tag me, I will send you a shirt, and the shirt is awesome. Have a wonderful rest of your day.